Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Rachel. And I'm Freddie. Welcome to the New Statesman's Politics Podcast. This is an episode we like to call You Ask Us. Hello, I'm Anusha Kellyan, Britain editor at The New Statesman and host of this podcast. And joining me in the studio, I have our deputy political editor, Rachel Wearmouth, and our political correspondent, Freddie Hayward. And they've been digging around in our virtual mailbag to look through all of your questions that you've sent in this week. Rachel, you go first. What's your question? Okay, so um, this is a question from Edward who asks, uh, what happened to the Labour Party's foreign policy agenda? Is David Lammy too busy with his LBC show? Bit spicy. Wow, this is a bit of a harsh (laughs) question from Edward, given that we have seen a bit of a... I mean, <laughs> relatively, we've seen a bit of a foreign policy blitz from the Labour Party. Um, Keir Starmer's been travelling around. He's visited The Hague to meet Europol. Uh, he's visited Justin Trudeau in Canada, Emmanuel Macron in France. Um, and he's also said he would renegotiate the post-Brexit trade deal with the EU and the UK needed to wean itself off China. Mm. Yeah, I think sort of what, what what's happened to Labour Party's foreign policy, I think... Um, I don't know. It's, it's not. It's not always top of the news foreign policy. Anyway, you know, yeah. it's not like it's never sort of you know a bulletin leader necessarily, unless it's been you know particularly contentious. Unless policy. it's summer, yeah, like like <laughs> unless it's summer or um, it's um, something like Brexit. Um, mm. I guess his team would say you know he spent a lot of time trying to prepare for the job, meeting officials in various places across the world. I think it's probably fair to say that when it's come to sort of big issues like China and Ukraine, um, they've probably kind of kept to that sort of Starmerite, not causing too much division, mm-hmm. trying to sort of bring back some measure of kind of quiet government. But I think, you know, there are there are things that David Lammy in particular has set out. For example, you know, they've, they've, they've led a charge for kind of pushing um, for some kind of special tribunal to prosecute Vladimir Putin personally mm-hmm. uh, for, for war crimes. Um, you, you could say that David Lammy's got extremely good links with the, the Biden administration. Um, it's probably been very useful to the leadership in that sense. Um, and I think that he's probably been the one who's kind of kicked off and started the ball rolling, ball rolling rather, um, towards some kind of renegotiation of the Brexit deal. You know, he started that trade unlocked speech. I think it was about you know three, four, five months ago now, which was seemed to be the start of this push for a closer relationship with the EU. Mm-hmm. Okay, and have we learned anything new from all of these visits that Starmer and others have made? I think we've learned a little bit about the priorities that an incoming. Uh, Labour government will have. They know that they need to um, re-establish our relations with the EU, even if Rishi Sunak's done quite a good job with the Windsor framework of doing so. They also know, I think, that they need to be very close to the Americans. Uh, If you look at Keir Starmer's background uh, um, at the CPS, when he was Director of Public Prosecutions, he worked very closely with the Obama administration and the Attorney General uh, there over extradition and Mm -hmm. uh, cooperation in Africa, etc. So Keir Starmer's always been very close Uh, to the Democrats within Washington, D.C. David Lammy is exactly the same. He's um, spent a lot of time there. He's quite well respected. Um, He knows the think tankers quite well and the sort of uh, the foreign policy establishment there. And then on the Brexit question and the Europe question, I think that was that was really interesting because I don't think they had the the perfect week. Uh, They sort of started off saying that 
Uh, they did want to pursue a closer uh, relationship uh, through this negotiation, renegotiation of the TCA in 25. Later on, we learned that the EU didn't really see it as a renegotiation. Uh, they basically saw it as a, a check-in um, about how the implementation is going. Um, so how much they can um, actually change that deal, I think is, there's a big question mark over. But the, the, I think Rachel's right. The broad point about UK foreign policy, and we've seen it over Ukraine, we also see it over China, is that there's broad consensus between the two parties, so it doesn't dominate the Westminster conversation. Not in the way that it did when Jeremy Corbyn had very different yeah. foreign policy lines than than the government did. Indeed, yeah, and I think sort of there helped with this because, you know, Donald Trump, if he was re-elected, would not be popular, and I think a lot of people are quite comfortable settling into an international consensus that um, is not necessarily particularly welcoming for someone like Trump. Um, I think there are, there's a couple of other things to mention in terms of like Labour policy. Um, Dave Lammy's made a couple of speeches on kleptocracy in particular and has tried to drive an anti agenda. Uh, similarly on climate change, he's pushing for um, like a, a fourth pillar of the UN to include um, some kind of like green, green commitment um, for countries across the world. But again, those are things that never exactly lead the bulletin. So they're very easy to be missed by people, I think. Yeah. Perhaps going back to our question, the, the thing that people see more of from David Lammy are those, you know, quite provocative clips from his mm. LBC show. So perhaps it does look a bit like his priority is doing his sort of media stuff, which he's very good at, um, rather than the foreign policy stuff, which often doesn't top the agenda, like you say. Uh, just on the Trump point, I think this is the key question for Labour's foreign policy. Uh, we might have the two elections at the same time mm. next year. Obviously, the US election is in November, and there are some suggestions that the UK election will be in the autumn. Um, how a Labour government, if they do get in, manages a Trump government, if he does get in, is is a massive question. Let's imagine, for instance, that Trump just uh, pulls forty billion out of um, out of aid to Ukraine. Does the UK then step up and have to uh, give Ukraine another ten billion to try and um, fill the gap? I mean, there's huge questions over um, how Trump will treat NATO and what Keir Starmer will do. So I think that's the question that should be animating them at the moment. And it would be the same question, I think, for an incoming Conservative government as well, because yeah. we do have this, this like you say, a bipartisan political consensus on how the UK should be uh, responding to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But you've seen that sort of personal animosity between Donald Trump and UK Labour politicians play out with his um, clashes with Sadiq Khan, for yeah. example. Um, Keir Starmer is a very different politician from Sadiq Khan, but you can see that there might be a little bit more of a toxic relationship there than perhaps with Conservative counterparts. I think so. And Keir Starmer, I think it was on a Politico podcast at the weekend, yeah. he made this comment, which was very, is seemingly innocuous, but he basically said that, or admitted that Donald Trump was not his desirable um, candidate for president, which it doesn't sound like a massive statement, but I think we know how thin-skinned uh, Donald Trump is. We know that he cares what the mayor of um, <laughs> a city in the UK says about him, and he will tweet about it and will act upon it. So I think that was quite dangerous. I, I wrote that uh, in a morning call this week and some of the comments back were really interesting what someone just said well Trump's an exception I mean he's already such a threat to NATO and to the the, the Western security establishment that it's okay for Starmer to make these comments I'm not sure that's necessarily true I just think um, it is a risk there's not much benefit um, in distancing yourself from a future US president at the moment I mean we can see how the election goes. I can't imagine Joe Biden is asking Keir Starmer every day to to endorse him. And we've also not seen Keir Starmer go to the White House yet. Yeah. Remember, that's something that Tony Blair did back in 96, I think it was, when he went to 
uh, the White House and saw Bill Clinton at that famous press conference together. Mm. So I don't know whether uh, that'll be something that Keir Starmer wants to do, uh, but it's definitely not happened yet. After the break, Freddie will introduce his question. Give us a clue on what that is. Uh, we're going to go back to the trust era. Again. Not again. <laughs> <laughs> If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on the New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back after this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, Freddie, what's your question? This is a question from Paddy who asks, had Sunak not been required to keep Jeremy Hunt in place in the aftermath of Truss, who might he have chosen to be Chancellor? Would Sunak's preferred brand of economics differ from what Hunt is providing? Interesting question, yeah. I mean, listeners who may have forgotten that kind of crazy time, Mm. Liz Truss appointed... Uh, Jeremy Hunt as Chancellor after she sacked Quasi Quartek. So when Rishi Sunak came in after after all of the chaos of that mini budget, he had to keep stability at the Treasury. It yeah. was Jeremy Hunt who sort of calmed the markets. And um, so when he became Prime Minister, he couldn't have chosen someone who perhaps he might have preferred. And I think during the um, original Tory leadership campaign over that summer between Liz Truss and Sunak, um, it was reported that he would have liked to have made a closer ally of his, like Oliver Dowden, who's now got the Cabinet Office brief, or Mel Stride, who's work and pension secretary now, but he was um, Treasury Select Committee chair, um, his chancellor, because they're closer to him. Um, And our colleague, Rachel Cunliffe, who couldn't join us today, but she reported over the summer that there were some rumours that Rishi Sunak wanted to actually remove Jeremy Hunt from that post and put someone in who was a closer ally. That wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me if he wanted to to choose Oliver Dowden or or Mel Stride. Bit of a um, difficult question to answer in that, I think, post-trust, most of of the economic policy has been done from number 10 anyway. You know, it seems, it seems like, right. you know, this is Rishi Sunak's treasury and, you know, it's his Downing he's Street. He's running and, the country like he's Chancellor still. Yeah, basically, in, in a lot of ways. I really don't feel like there'd be, there'd have been much change regardless of who would have got the post. Um, right. But you do get the sense that he would have much preferred some kind of campaigning ally in there, whereas, you know... You could say that Jeremy Hunt very much feels like yesterday's man in that, like, he's a particular brand of Osbonomics. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, Sunak, I think, would probably try to prefer some uh, greater dividing lines. But I don't think um, that the economic policy would change that much. Um, You've seen sort of, and and does not appear that it's going to change that much, Um, you know, bar sort of the childcare plan and um, obviously some of the um, energy energy bills support that that they really needed to give out after that period anyway, um, you haven't seen a great deal of change from the current consensus in, in that, you know, we're seeing a lot of headlines about benefit cuts um, and, you know, lots of calls for backbenchers wanting tax cuts, basically, which, you know, Number 10 is quite happy to, to suggest it's sympathetic to, at least not now, if not now, 
before the election. Mm, both men seem to have quite a similar outlook on the economy, don't they? The sort yeah. of treasury brain slash dry Thatcherite economics. Um, so I suppose they do sing from that same hymn sheet, even if they're not necessarily sort of, they weren't necessarily very close political allies sort of within the party over that. I mean, Jeremy Hunt was uh, for a time running for Tory leader, so they were sort of competing with each other for a while. Um, <laughs> <do> you, <laughs> you forget about Yeah, these, exactly. I mean, yeah, these temporarily rivalries. And he did call for sort of massive slashes in corporation tax. Yeah, I can't remember what it was too, 15% yeah. or something like that. But yeah. it, was, it was a massive cut and that was what defined his leadership candidate and this was the sort of race to the bottom over tax cuts yeah. in that sort of the crazy summer when the Tory party was egging itself on. Um, but no, I, I agree broadly they don't come from um, radically different uh, economic uh, traditions, mm -hmm. uh, which makes sense. I mean, Rishi Sunak sees himself as having been proved right when the mini-budget debacle happened. Uh, I think Jeremy Hunt probably felt the same. M remember the atmosphere that when he came in, I remember that it was that Friday that Kwasi Kwarteng got sacked. Liz Truss gave that press conference in number 10 and basically gutted her own mini-budget with this rictus grin on her face and pretending nothing had changed. And then Jeremy Hunt came in and the atmosphere in Westminster was essentially that he was running the government. Do you remember he, he stood up and said, we, we now understand that we can't do this, that and that. And he just went through and just decimated her complete agenda. And then, and then we had Rishi Sunak um, come in as prime minister. Um, and that was obviously a countervailing force to Jeremy Hunt's power. But Jeremy Hunt still retained this this influence and this almost the stability within his position in part because Rishi Sunak didn't want to yeah. disturb the markets and he wanted, as you say, to maintain uh, stability going through. And now we're very close to a general election. So there's not necessarily been time or political capital uh, for Rishi Sunak to make that change. Whether it would have been different, I'm not sure that's necessarily the case if he had someone else. I think the the more interesting question almost is what if Rishi Sunak had won the leadership election first time round and before the mini budget um, and before the guilts went through the roof I mean I think people would obviously say guilts were still going through the roof uh, before the mini budget, that's what the trust acts would say anyway but rather than living or governing under the shadow of Liz Truss, what might his premiership been like if you had slightly more time six months or so and um a slightly more stable economic environment mm -hmm. maybe he would have had more uh, room for a maneuver then maybe he could have started talking about his vision for the country rather than focusing on those five priorities yeah and i mean it's kind of hard to judge quite where rishi sunak sits in terms of his, his economic policy like what he really thinks because his entire period um in the treasury was dominated by the you know coronavirus yeah. crisis so you know he would and you could say very much that he's benefited from that as an individual politician because, you know, there was, there is, and I still think to, you know, much smaller, but some extent yeah. that, that people credit him for furlough. Definitely. You know, um, you know when then, but then when you judge him against sort of think schemes like Eat Out to Help Out, you kind of wonder what his priorities are there, you know, like whether he's yeah. well, he's willing to take certain risks if it um, would help the, help the economy in some way. So well, that's what I always thought was interesting about Rishi Sunak was that he read as someone, I think, to the general public who was very generous during COVID and was, you know, trying to get us through this crisis. But his instincts actually underneath was, were to open the economy as quickly as possible and take risks like with the eat out to help out scheme yeah. which I think you know is, is is very much part of this dichotomy that we have with Rishi Sunak he read as a Remainer during the Conservative leadership campaign when yeah. he was actually a Brexiteer I think people generally see him and we've seen in some of the polling that we've run as a, as a centrist even though you know he has actually quite right 
instincts or at least you know in terms of the previous conservative leaders that we've had in recent years so you know you do have this the public image is belied by the actual instincts of the man but you get the impression that he's never actually able to quite follow through with what he wants i think that's right but i think this week has changed that right i mean like the you know the climate rollback kind of tells you that he's he given the choice and when faced with a very difficult and big question he'd go for the free market option yes um rather than potentially like investing or sticking the course with something i think he'd very much you know would prefer to go for free market that's true that's true we saw that when he said it should be the consumer's choice rather Mm -hmm. than the government deciding sort of what people do in terms of environmental policy Mm -hmm. and also i did think you know while the idea of and we spoke about it on the previous podcast so we won't dwell on it too much but the idea of rowing back on these uh, net zero policies was pitched as a way of saving money for people on lower incomes i also think there's definitely that chancellor brain there saying this isn't costed properly it's going to you know put us in x amount of debt in the long run which was something that he was worried about under boris johnson yeah i mean i think there are two key things that we look at to understand his economic policy a bit more the first is the resignation from boris johnson's Um, administration um, when he made clear in the letter that it was predominantly about the economic disagreements between the two. I was speaking to one former aide who was in number 10 at the time and they were basically saying that there was such a a disconnect between them because um, number 10 were trying to get the treasury to publish this big growth plan if you remember and there was massive Mm -hmm. resistance because uh, you had Boris Johnson who was much more motivated. I don't think we can call it a coherent economic framework but it was much more motivated by larger spending Mm -hmm. And he was conscious of trying to grow the economy coming out of the pandemic. And you had Rishi Sunak, who was extremely concerned about the massive debt that had been created during the pandemic. And you've seen that play through into his premiership now. And you also see it with the the Mays lecture as well. This was his um, big seminal outline of his economic theory when he was chancellor. Basically, he spoke about the importance of education, innovation, low taxes. It's It's the things that we're very familiar with. It's just not something that's been at the forefront of conservative policy in the past three or four years. Uh, Yeah, and I think it's going back to what we were previously saying. He is living under the shadow. I mean, he has just inherited all these problems that he detests and resents that he has to manage. You know, you can sort of see it in his defensive demeanour as well when he's like, well, this isn't my fault. I'm trying to solve these problems for you. Why are you not grateful? This is not what I would have done, Uh, which is not very good politics. But yeah, I don't think he's been able to deliver those budgets or deliver um, those king speeches or whatever it is, fully aligned with his beliefs. Thanks to everyone who submitted questions. We do read them all, so please keep them coming in. If you'd like to send us a question, just go to newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. Or if you're listening on Spotify, just scroll down on the episode page and leave a reply. And YouTube viewers can drop a question in the comments. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Rachel Wearmouth and Freddie Hayward. This episode was produced by Catherine Hughes. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. 